Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 2nd, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. Now, this week is an exciting episode, but before we dive into it, I want to thank those of you who continue to make Talk Nerdy possible each and every week. Remember, Talk Nerdyism will always be 100% free to download, and that's because of the support from listeners just like you. So this week, I want to thank Phil T. Bear, David J.E. Smith, Sinai, Pasquale Gelati, and Daniel Lang. Thank you very, very, very much. And remember, there are a ton of ways to pledge your support. You can visit patreon.com slash talknerdy. You can tell your friends about the show. You can rate or review it on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you download the show. And lastly, I've recently um, completely redesigned the Talk Nerdy store. We've got lots of cool stuff for sale there. All you have to do is visit talknerdymerch.com or you can go to talknerdy.com or carasantamaria.com and click through those links. All right. So this week is an exciting episode because I had the opportunity to sit down with Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Donna is a science journalist and author and a speaker who really focuses her work on the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion. And her newest book of six, I should mention, is called The Angel and the Assassin, The Tiny Brain Cell That Changed the Course of Medicine. And those tiny brain cells that we're going to be discussing, of course, our microglia. So guys, without any further ado, here she is, Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Donna, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, I'm so excited to talk about your new book, The Angel and the Assassin, the tiny brain cell that changed the course of medicine. So let's do it. Let's talk microglia. <laughs> when 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 we hear the word microglia, I think a lot of people don't even recognize right away that that is a brain cell. They're used to thinking, okay, brain cell is neuron. Neurons are what you find in the brain, but there are a lot of different brain cells, aren't there? Yeah. And so um, I set out to tell this scientific detective story about microglia, which have um, turned out over research over the past seven years to be one of the most important overlooked and misunderstood cells in the human body. And um, there are lots of reasons why we missed how important they are. But as this understanding has emerged, we're rewriting our understanding and the picture of what causes and what we might be able to do to intervene in disorders of the mind from depression to bipolar to anxiety to OCD and neurocognitive disorders like Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. So it's enormously exciting research and it all hangs on this little new star of the brain, microglia. Oh, I love that. And I can't wait to talk about what some of that research is showing us. Maybe before we do, we should take um, take a little bit of time to define what microglia are. Because of course, when you say they're a new star, they're a new star maybe in terms of research, but they've been around a really long time. That's right. So, um, so it's really a story of contrast. Um, for a very long time, starting with the era of Descartes and early philosophers, um, we had this idea that of mind-body duality. Descartes really put that forth and that idea that the brain and the body function as church and state entities. 
But we can also thank early anatomists for this understanding. And, you know, about a century ago, researchers discovered something called the blood-brain barrier, which I'm a writer. I like analogies, so I use a lot of them. It's this dense constellation of red blood cells that sit at the base of the brain, and they're so tightly packed they're thought to be like this funnel that will not allow immune molecules from the body to go up into the brain. So we've had this idea and this understanding for more than a century and going back much longer that for these reasons, the brain is what scientists have called immune privileged. I want to break that down. We know that every organ in our body is ruled by our immune system and our immune system, you know, let's say you are running and you fall and you scrape your knee. All your immune molecules, your white blood cells and your T cells come running in and they want to contain that inflammation. They want to battle any pathogens that are coming in and they want to make sure that you're going to be healthy and strong. We also know that our immune system, when it's overtaxed by things in the environment, let's say you're exposed to a lot of chronic stressors um, or pathogens or toxins, our immune system can get things right, but it can also get things wrong. It can get confused, and that can lead to runaway inflammation and That can lead to autoimmune disease. So inflammation in the body is ruled by our immune system. Our immune system has to get that like Goldilocks just right, not too little and not too much. And the one organ thought not to be ruled by our immune system was our brain. Right. Like this is the reason that back when I was working as a neuroscientist in a lab, we would um, have to be very, very careful when we would culture brain tissue because the idea was, although there is some immune response, (laughs) it's not nearly as strong as we can see in other parts of the brain. And it's why a lot of people, um, when they work with in vitro brain tissue, actually culture using antibiotics because it's the only way to keep their their cultures from getting infected on a regular basis. Right. And so adding to this contrast between what we thought then and what we know now, we also misunderstood what microglia are. So in the 1920s, um, and I love that the name of your podcast is Talk Nerdy because I love <laughs> Talk Nerdy. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. So um, when microglia were first noted and named in the 1920s by Spanish neuroscientists, and you know, you know, the School of Neuroscience came out of that cabal um, in Spain, they were categorized as being what we call glia cells or glial cells. And there were four types of glial cells, and glial cells were thought to emerge in utero during development when all stem cells differentiate into different parts of the human body, right? Like, so some stem cells, like in that first few weeks in utero in human development, they become skin or hair cells. Others become liver cells, and some become neurons and some become nerve cells. And microglia, like other glial cells, were thought to be emerging from the same stem cells that become nerve cells. And and thus, 
in the brain, they were thought to be pretty boring because they were thought and dubbed to be the brain's housekeeper cells. They catered to the needs of neurons the way that an entourage would cater to the needs of a movie star. Neurons need a little sip of growth factor, microglia, and other glial helper cells would go and take care of neurons. If a neuron was sick and dying, microglia would just take it and cart it away. They were thought to be these kind of boring housekeeper cells. And you mentioned Petri dishes and experiments. So it's worth mentioning that microglia, all the neuroscientists that I talked to while writing The Angel and the Assassin, they cursed these cells coming up through their lab tech days because they got in Petri dishes and they ruined their, their cultures, they ruined their experiments. So they were cursed, they were categorized as being glial cells, they were existing in an organ that we thought was more or less immune-privileged, and we missed the fact until around 1912, uh, sorry, 2012, when it was discovered that in fact microglia not only emerge from the same stem cells that morph into white blood cells in our body, those immune cells I mentioned a minute ago, on the seventh or eighth day of gestation, they change from stem cells into immune cells and they rise into the brain. So all this time, we've been thinking that we don't have this big immune response in the brain. We thought microglia were boring housekeeper cells. And it turns out that in fact, they're immune cells functioning in the brain. And in 2012, researchers at Harvard found that microglia cells, when they are overactivated, they morph from being these good angels. They actually look like these very elegant dancers in the brain with these long, elegant limbs. They can be like good doctors running around and knocking on neurons and tapping on them to see, you know, is everything healthy here? That's their angelic role. But when they are overactivated, they morph into big, bushy, Pac-Man-like cells, and they begin munching on and eating away at the synapses, the brain's synapses that we need for cognition and mood and clarity of mind. And this discovery rewrote our understanding of what these cells are, but also opened up a flood of research for a new understanding of the relationship between inflammation in the body, inflammation in the brain, and psychiatric disorders. So I spent those three years reporting on what these discoveries mean and, and how they're changing our understanding of mental illness. You know, microglia, remember that name. They are game changers for a mental illness. Interesting. So what we what we had long, you know, really thought and, and known, I think, for a while. Like I I trained in neuroscience, let's see. Uh, I did my master's. I got it in 07. So I started in like 04. And I think around that time, I was pretty aware of the fact 
Um, you know, I knew what glial cells were. I knew, you know, the differences between like astrocytes and microglia. And I worked in an in vitro lab and we would see microglia light up underneath the microscope. And we were pretty aware that these sort of, as you call them, housekeeper cells did have an immune function. We just always thought of the immune function as being somewhat like muted in the brain, which is why if you do get something like, um, uh, you know, like a bad brain infection, like an encephalitis yes. or something. Yeah, they it's are very active. hard to treat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we we would see that these things are active. We were kind of aware of this, but we thought that their you know response was pretty muted. Of course, this wasn't an area that I studied, so I wasn't as aware. But it makes perfect sense that at the same time as we were starting to realize, like you said, that the inflammation process of the body's immune response seemed to be in some ways more responsible, if not, you know, highly responsible for some of the negative symptoms of physical like disease in the body. Um, that of course there might be some sort of parallel in the brain. So if your if your brain's immune cells are angry (laughs) and they get activated, they're going to start doing stuff. And sometimes the stuff that they're doing doesn't just happen to disease cells or it doesn't just happen to invading, you know, bacteria or viruses. It might actually happen to healthy tissue. That's Um, exactly right. hmm, Okay. Right. So we previously thought that the brain would have an immune response, like you said, and in rare diseases that attack the brain, like encephalitis Mm -hmm. Or in the case of a severe injury, right? Like the brain swells and you have to relieve pressure in the brain. But other than that, this idea that um, there was a parallel in the brain to immune function um, that was similar to what we know happens in the body was thought to be, um, you know, again, the word, even in the literature in 2009, every paper would write, the brain is immune privileged in this way. It is not functioning the same way that the immune system is functioning in the body. But Yeah, almost like it was like this very kind of, like we have to be extra careful with the brain because once you get in there, we've got all these great ways to keep things out. But if something manages to wiggle in, you're pretty screwed because it's a pretty like naive system once you're in there. Right. And so this understanding that microglia are very sophisticated modulars, mm-hmm. modulators of our immune response has really led to this rapid growth in new possible interventions for kind of calming microglia down so that they behave like the angels of the brain that we want them to behave like and not as the brain's blind assassins. Now, you mentioned something really interesting, and that is that this idea of neuroinflammation in the brain being related to inflammation in the body. And indeed, we know that in individuals with chronic inflammation in the body, as um, we can tests by C-reactive protein and IL-6 and other inflammatory factors, we know that individuals facing chronic inflammation physically have heightened levels of microglial activity in the brain. We also know that in individuals with a range of different psychiatric disorders from bipolar, depression, OCD, and cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's, that microglia are over 
activated. So a lot of research is running in this direction. Okay, how do we calm these microglial cells down in patients, especially those patients who we see are suffering from chronic physical inflammation. And that is a really new way of looking at things because we've had this idea for a long time that a patient's physical health, their chronic inflammation was a physical thing, but what was happening in the brain was a mental thing. And yet, around the years that slightly after the years you were talking about, around 2009 to 2011, we began to see a lot of fascinating studies that were tying having multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, um, and other autoimmune diseases with a significantly greater likelihood of developing mood disorders and even psychosis. Uh, similar associations between gum disease and Alzheimer's. Um, patients who were getting bone marrow transplants who had schizophrenia were having schizophrenia improve by changing out their bone marrow, which is where our immune cells, many of them are born. So all this literature around 2009, 2010 preceded the discovery that microglial cells are actually when overactivated, sculpting the brain in suboptimal ways. And so it's just been this explosion of research. It's really been a golden era, and we're just starting to make sense of how it can pivot us from thinking of psychiatric disorders as purely chemical imbalance disorders to this idea of brain sculpting through neuroinflammation in suboptimal ways that leads to a loss of synapses that we associate with symptoms of depression, anxiety, and loss of cognition. Hmm. It's such an interesting um, thing when an entire kind of field of science realizes something that no, I shouldn't say that they overlooked, but that, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't in a position to start to see. And I think that, you know, the big question that I always ask right away is how promising is this research? Is this like, how much of this is like, oh, we're, we're excited, we're zealous because we found something interesting that we hadn't understood before. And now we're overly excited and saying, maybe this is the answer to every problem. And how much of this is like solid, we've replicated it, and we're starting to find that, holy crap, this is almost like an entirely new field of neuroscience that we really need to pay attention to. So I think we're somewhere in the middle there. Um, we're um, at a point where, you know, when you talk to the top neuroscientists and immunologists, they're really, the two are becoming one field, neuroimmunology. And mm -hmm. they're driving toward each other with genetics to answer um, answer a number of questions about how how can we reboot this little cell in ways that will help us lead to neurogenesis, right? Because if this theory that microglia sculpts synapses in ways that lead to disease um, if, is followed through, well, then that means that it's also leading to a loss of neurogenesis. 
And if we associate neurogenesis and the birth of new neurons, say, in the hippocampus with improved outcomes in depression, um, we know that that neurogenesis is only going to happen if we can keep microglia calm, right? Because microglia don't just prune synapses. When they're overactivated, they spit out a whole host of nasty um, inflammatory toxins in the brain. So we need them to be behaving properly and, and not to, and we can't be overzealous about understanding what this science tells us, but we can look at it in a series of buckets. You know, I kind of see it as buckets in terms of there's some ways in which we're influencing microglia right now that look very promising. There are some ways in which, hmm, you know, we've got a couple of double-blind randomized clinical trials, but I'd like to see a lot more. And then we have things that are, you know, still happening just in animals and maybe just getting into human clinical trials. So, um, so yeah, so it crosses the span of what we think of as research we can be sure of, research we really want to see a lot more and research we just don't know yet. But the fact that so many um, different things have happened in the research world, which are finding that this cell is pivotal, gives us an entirely new entry. And I can give you lots of examples of those different buckets. Amazing. Well, I, I think that's probably, you know, the next um thing that's coming to my mind is like let's let's break that down that sort of um span everything from where the re- research literature is looking really solid and we're like it's a really exciting thing because we're starting to replicate these studies and we're starting to find that this is like an important um an important area for potential treatment um all the way to things that are like hmm Maybe it's the case, mm-hmm. maybe it's not, and we've, yeah, right? <laughs> we've still got more work to do. So yeah, maybe let's start with what we what we you know places where the confidence level is really high. Sure. Um, you know, what are some of the stories that you tell in the book sure. that you're feeling like, wow? When I dug in this literature, I'm like, holy crap! I cannot believe that that this is something that we know now. Yeah, so I really wanted to go um, when I followed, you know, intersperse the stories of the scientists who are uncovering this research in their labs with stories of patients who are, you know, running out of answers. You know, for the last 30 mm-hmm. years, we've given psychiatric patients the same answers, and those are important answers medications and therapy, which are really, we can't underscore how essential those can be. But, you know, many medications work in about a 33, 33% of people over time. And so... And some are worse than that, actually. And some are but, much yeah. worse than that. I'm mm-hmm. being very generous with the literature. And so, and and over time, that number goes down in any given patient, right? So, um, we know that a good number of people don't respond to any antidepressant treatment. And increasingly, we think, and in fact, I could say we are about to know that that is because chronic inflammatory micro chronic microglia led inflammation in the brain makes it more difficult for pharmaceuticals to work in some patients so that's a really cool area of research um, but to start with what we really know so I followed mm-hmm. patients who were choosing things that we could categorically say were safe 
because, right, I'm not going to follow a patient who isn't doing something that's safe. And where I could look at the literature and look at a good body of research and feel reassured that we, we know what we're doing. And one patient who had tried more than 15 psychiatric drugs, every possible intervention, mind, body, diet, uh, meditation, exercise that she could try, um, had kind of run out of options. She was describing what she called a kind of a half-life. And indeed, I spent a year with her reporting, um, meeting her, reporting on everything about her life um, on and off for over a year. And it was a very difficult existence. She could not even um, have the doorbell turned on in her house because it was so activating for her. She couldn't eat at a restaurant. And she was raising two kids, adorable kids, and she just wanted something more. So she um, allowed me to follow her as she began trying transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. Now, the body of research around this has been pretty robust, and it appears that when patients receive transcranial magnetic stimulation with a really good practitioner. And I want to be really careful about that because I've you know, been on book tour and talked to a lot of audiences. And there are a lot of different ways that one can receive tra- TMS. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to receive any kind of therapy with someone who has been doing this for a long time who's a good understanding of how different networks in the brain work and who's been looking at scans of the brain um, for a very long time. And so she chose a practitioner who's a leader in the field. And as she began to receive these treatments, which we know allow neurons to uh, synapses to reconnect and refire and wire together in the brain, Mm-hmm. which we understand then has to affect what researchers call neuronal microglial units, right? That neurons and microglia are functioning as kind of units in the brain dancing together. Um, and if microglia are happy, neurons are happy. So we see this reconnection of neural activity in areas of the brain that when they're underconnected, we associate with psychiatric symptoms. Okay. Those networks over time began to ca- come back online. And for reasons we're understanding through other research, it appears that this technology, when, when appropriately applied, can help reboot microglia so that they stop attacking synapses. And so, you know, this was someone who had tried every single thing to reboot. Um, the function of her brain in ways that would help different areas of the brain between the amygdala, the fear center, and the hippocampus, where we store memories, and the prefrontal cortex, where we make decisions which were clearly not functioning well in her brain scans. She tried everything to try to have um, a brain that was functioning more normally. And I think I have to step back here because I realize what I haven't said to listeners is that 
we were able to watch her brain scans in real time, like a live movie of her praying from the minute she began this therapy to her 30th session when she finished it. So we could see in real time, like a movie, that areas of her brain that needed to talk to each other were not talking to each other. And some areas were way too lit up, like her amygdala, her fear center of the brain. So that, that overactivity and underactivity in brain circuits through the course of TMS, we were able to see her brain become over time with a lot of work in between sessions, um, a more normal brain. And I saw her life, you know, she got her life back. So I think that that's one area where we can go, oh, you know, this is pretty exciting. We have a technology that appears to calm these cells down, allow synapses to refire and 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 wire together in important ways and we see these patients do better you know the original research came out of Harvard Alvaro Pascual Leone is the leader scientific father of TMS literature and he's been able to show the efficacy rate in patients experiencing major depression that many of them after a course of treatment of TMS, 30 sessions, they never relapse into depression mm. again. So he's done a number of well-replicated studies. And um, I think we can put that in the bucket of things that are pretty darn interesting. The research has been done in human beings for a long time. This isn't just research in animals. There are caveats, right? Yeah. It has to be done with a practitioner who, as I said, is able to look at an individual's brain, understand where that um, where different levels of activity, whether underactive or overactive, what that means in terms of synaptic activity. And also we have some caveats. For instance, according to Dr. Pasqualione, we don't know if we want to be doing TMS in patients with bipolar. Right, we just do, we haven't done a body of research that would tell us that that's completely safe. So, gotcha. with all therapies, and for those who um, I hope will read the book, you're going to see like caveat city. You know, I'll talk about something that I'll say. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Um, you know, here's yeah. the efficacy. These studies have been done in humans uh, versus animals. Some have only been done in animals because we have to be careful. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, KiwiCo. Remember, KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create super cool hands-on projects and toys that are designed to expose kids to concepts in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. I am so excited about working with this company because I think it's not only, like, you know, fun, but like incredibly, incredibly important. If if there was like one gift that you could give a kid in your life, and when I say a kid, I mean like from birth until our age, like grown-up kids can totally have fun with KiwiCo. Um, KiwiCo is it. It's a, it's a monthly crate, a monthly box that comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project. You don't have to run to the store to get anything. It even comes with the tools that you need. Uh, there are detailed kid-friendly instructions, and there's an enriching magazine that's filled with content so that they can learn even more about that crate's 
theme. Now, I want to tell you about my experience with KiwiCo just last week. I was able to bring some of the crates to um, to the group home where I do therapy with teenage girls. And we did uh, group sessions using these KiwiCo crates. And it was incredible. In um, in one group, we we did the crate uh, called Trashketball, which is a sort of mechanical um, trash can with a basketball hoop so that you can throw your, your paper into it. And then in the other group, we actually made a pair of stereo headphones from scratch. And this encouraged... Um, you know, really pro-social behavior. It encouraged working together. You know, the girls did a really good job to compliment complement one another and to um, help encourage e- each other as they worked through some of the steps that really do encourage things like frustration tolerance as well. Um, it was just an incredible experience to see the girls build something from scratch, something that's usable, something that's fun, learn about science along the way. And of course, walk away at the end with a really cool thing that they can um, that they can share within the house. And so you can inspire this love of learning, this love of science in your own kids, in a kid that's in your life by um, by just going to kiwico.com slash nerdy because there you will get your first month for free. So again, guys, to take advantage of this offer, you've just got to go to kiwico.com slash nerdy to get your free trial. All right, everyone, let's get back to the show. Yeah, welcome to science, right? And especially, um, yeah, clinical science and psychiatry, you know, things that have historically been difficult to study because the brain in some ways really is a black box. Like we talked about earlier, you know, we can look for specific proteins. We can look, like you said, on scans, like on fMRI scans for um, uh, changes in activity, but we can't just draw blood from the brain. We can't just like take a little bit of uh, cerebrospinal fluid from a typical psychiatric client and we don't have like tests that just say, oh, look, this is what's wrong. A lot of this is symptom-based and we have to just do what we can with what we understand about people's symptoms. It's very, it's a lot more complicated than, you know, treating an infection. Absolutely. Um, and so we should get back to tests, though, because microglia are giving us some new tests. We're getting a new understanding through studies of concussion about some of the ways in which we can look at microglial activation through ah. blood tests, which are going to be, which are also game changers. So, um, so, so not just as like a, an understanding of the disease mechanism or potentially the treatment, but almost like as an assay, like as some sort mm-hmm. of detection right. system. I love that. Like, I mean, going back to your client with the TM, not your client, but the, the, <laughs> uh, the patient that you were following with the TMS, um, treatment, where maybe you can clarify for for those who are listening a little bit, like what role do, did microglia seem to play in this whole complex, um, you know, state of psychiatric uh, difficulty and and then treatment through TMS? Like how active and how necessary was microglia to that story? So we so uh, we understand that if those synapses are oversculpted, we -hmm. understand from the research coming out of a number of labs now, but really started with Beth Stevens' lab at Harvard, that they have been oversculpted because these little cells, microglia, for lack of a better word, destroyed them. They actually, they engulfed them and they chew them up. They could literally see, not in this patient's brain, but 
in their experiments that microglia digest synapses and they can see synapses in the belly of the microglia, right? So we know that when synapses are disappearing, and that is the whole microglial theory of brain disease, is that when synapses are missing in the brain, when they are not connecting, that microglia engulf and digest them in a way that leads to disorders, uh, um, psychiatric disorders. So in introducing this magnetic pulse in the brain, the understanding, and we have to be careful because we're not looking even as we have new high-resolution technology tools, we're not looking at microglial activity while we're doing TMS, right? Yeah, yeah we're exactly. looking. So, so we're n- we're not able to go into a brain and open it up that way and do that. Um, no, we're making inferences. Based we're on, making inferences. Yeah. So, so we also understand um, that in other technologies. So, uh, one of them really is quite extraordinary called gamma light flicker therapy. I thought of it as like a Star Wars type of (laughs) technology, uh, which is going on at at, um, MIT. Researcher Li Wei Sai spent a day with her at the Peak Hour Institute at MIT. And this story, I think, will help answer your question about TMS a little bit. Um, So with light flicker therapy, um, Li Wei Sai was just actually trying to figure out how to bring synapses back online in Alzheimer's disease. And she was getting tired of looking at genes in Alzheimer's because all of the medications that we and pharmaceuticals that we've targeted to genes in Alzheimer's have turned out to be big busts. And she's just getting very frustrated. She thought, you know, we're going to figure, we're going to discover like another 50 Alzheimer's genes. We could be doing this for the rest of my lifetime and all of these targets could fail. So she started going back to the basic concept of neurons and that neurons are sending electrical pulses and that the brain is really functioning, as she puts it, like a computer, sending a lot of data, right? And we need those neurons to be connecting and sending the right messages to each other and synapses to be firing. So she went back through a lot of research and she discovered that if you um, introduce a 40 hertz pulse to the brain, so another brain hacking method here, Mm -hmm. that it seemed to change the behavior of neurons. So she started doing this in her experiment. She has a team of 60 people in her lab. And they used high-resolution tools to look at how introducing this 40 hertz light into the brain would affect the neurons. And here we're in animal studies in animal models of Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's. But what she found was that it didn't really affect, of course, it affected neurons, but what was really affected were microglial cells. Microglial cells stopped attacking synapses, and instead, they began cleaning tau proteins in the brain. So they morphed from their bad actor assassin role, and they went back to the role that really nature intended for microglia, which are to be these good immune modulators in the brain, right? You know, the Cinderella cells, Tom Insull, who read um, a galley of my book, he goes, yes, you've captured these Cinderella cells in the brain, (laughs) you know. Um, 
they, they've been long ignored and they have to behave just right. So they're a little bit Cinderella, a little bit Goldilocks for us to be healthy. And in gamma light flicker therapy, when she saw this, Li Wei Sai said she was so undone by it. She did not think it could be possible. Here she is, head of peak hour at MIT, that she laid awake for three nights thinking, wow. this cannot be happening. I can't possibly have rebooted these microglial cells by introducing this electrical impulse, right? So she went into the brain invasively in animals with optogenetics so that she could watch microglia in real time, which gets to your question, like, how can we see what microglia are doing in these therapies? Well, she watched it in real time. (laughs) They're so tiny. So she went in there with these new high-resolution tools, and she saw it happening in in real time, right up front. So that gave her more confidence. She went back to non-invasive studies where she was applying this 40 hertz light outside of the brain um, in animals. And this time, she amped it up to not the hertz, but to using animal models of mice with an animal um, model for Alzheimer's, a more moderate Alzheimer's rather than early moderate Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And she and her team delivered this therapy, which, you know, I was in the lab. Honestly, it looks like a kid's science experiment. It's a little Tupperware box. They have taken a, what looks like a light wand. They've fitted it with LED lights and they've um, programmed it with a computer software that they developed in their lab. And they ran this little LED light wand with this 40 hertz, hertz pulse over the brains of mice with Alzheimer's for one hour. And again, the microglia stopped behaving badly. They stopped spitting out neurotoxins. They became very helpful cells. And again, they began to clean tau protein in the brain and mice improved on memory tasks, and the results lasted for up to a week. So I asked her, um, are you doing this? Because that's kind of wild um, mm-hmm. that we could reboot these misunderstood cells in this way. Sounds a little Star Wars to me. This looks like a kitchen, you know, a kitchen table science um, project done by one of my kids in middle school. <laughs> And she said, yeah, I do it every day. And then she laughed and said, they're all lining up at MIT outside my lab. Every scientist here is coming by for like flicker therapy. So those are the kind of stories that I tell in the book. And together, I think they form a kind of gestalt picture along with other therapies like ketamine and the tests that I mentioned, which we can use as assays for severity of concussion. They all are coming back to this little cell. And I feel like it's time that we get this information out there so that readers can have this understanding of their brain as this very sensitive immune organ and that that can begin to change the way we see our own agency and our own health, but also to help drive the field of research in this direction with the hope that it will lead to new answers in a field that has long been stymied. I mean, it's it's so fascinating that, you know, 
sometimes it takes new technologies to be able to dig deep into something that, you know, maybe we had a hint of, or maybe we were beginning to understand, but we just simply couldn't study as well as we would have liked. I mean, is that really what the issue was with microglia up until, like you had mentioned, what, like, uh, the early 2000s are actually, yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Gosh, the early 2010s. Yeah. yeah. Is mm-hmm. the issue just that we didn't have the capability or is it that it felt kind of like a, um, a lost cause? Like, why is it that we were able to see this resurgence in, in research? Well, great question. I think again, it's, um, it's multiple, multiple influences. Um, first of all, you know, once we make a decision in medicine, like think about germ theory, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have your hands in one patient and they're co- and they have an infection and you go to another patient, you know, we make decisions in health research and in medicine and it can take a long time for them to be questioned. Like, you know, I wrote a book called the autoimmune epidemic and, um, the theory that the body's immune system could not turn on itself, horror autotoxicus, came down through medical schools well into the 1970s, even though researchers, the lead researchers in the field of autoimmune disease research, were able to see in the late 50s that indeed in their lab animals, again, I just apologize to all the lab animals out there. (laughs) I just, I know, you know, I'm always reporting on this stuff. But their their rabbits in the lab, they could see that their own immune cells were attacking their healthy cells, which is a real analogous to microglia attacking synapses in the brain. So that belief that the body could not turn on itself, horror autotoxicus, came down through the field of medicine for many decades after we knew that it wasn't true. Um, so Again, with germ theory, autoimmune disease, we see that an assumption is made and it takes someone to question it. And often that questioning comes hand in hand with the new tools. So to me, it's somebody in all three of these different, you know, paradigm shifts in medicine. Oh, autoimmune disease can happen in the body and germs do cause disease and we can pass them along to each other. And microglia do sculpt the brain and we do have neuroinflammation in the brain and neuroinflammation is related to psychiatric diseases and cognitive disorders. In all of these, it's a marrying together of a researcher or a group of researchers being willing to go against the accepted dogma of the day that has come down for a century or more, coupled with tools that allow them to go in and look and see something and repeat and replicate those studies, these original studies in 2012 about microglia eating synapses, they replicated them for more than a year before they were willing to come out and tell all of science what they were seeing. So I think it's that that coming together of kind of, in my experience as a science reporter, kind of kick butt unafraid researchers who are willing to say, you know what, I don't think so. I think something different is happening here. And Mm -hmm. using the new tools that are available to do that. Um, One other example of that is Yoni Kipnis at UVA, who I 
um, report it on and write a chapter about his work at UVA. So we have accepted for as long as we've understood human anatomy, that our lymphatic vessels, which ferry our white blood cells to any site of infection or injury, these lymphatic vessels run from our toes, um, you know, through our face, but they don't reach the brain. No one had ever seen these lymphatic vessels around the brain. So again, that led to this idea that the brain was immune privileged. Hmm. Yoni found in 2015, so we're talking five years ago, he started to look at the brain in a different way using, again, new tools. He questioned this idea that there were no lymphatic vessels touching the brain because of experiments that he had been doing, which showed that if he altered the function of T cells in the body, he could alter the cognition of mice. So if the brain is immune privileged, if there are no lymphatic vessels moving from the body to the brain, how could it be that if you alter the activity of immune cells in the body, you would alter cognition in mice? That shouldn't be, right? Yeah. Well, he found another way of dissecting again, the mouse brain, sorry, mice, and he found that in the meningeal spaces that are that, you know, thick membrane around the brain, lymphatic vessels are running all the way through it. That is an entirely new piece of anatomy that took asking a new question and using new tools to prove a hunch at the same time. And I think we see that pattern over and over again when we look at paradigm shifts. I mean, it's 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 such a fascinating topic, and you obviously dug deeper into it than almost anybody else has. I guess what I'm interested to know is, like, how do you choose what you want to report on and follow? You know, this is not your first book. This is actually your, how many have you written now? Like, five, six, six book. Um, and obviously, there's a bit of a theme to it, but there's also, uh, I think, a lot of breadth between your different topics. So, you know, what what possesses you to find that singular focus? And then sort of what is the thing that clicks in your head to say, this is a book versus this is an article? Well, I feel like the job of a science journalist is to kind of stand on the mountaintop and look at emerging trends in research that can help add to our human understanding of disease and recovery. Like that's, I, I just think that's the job. The job isn't to have every answer. Like you'll notice during our whole conversation, I had to leave some things hanging, right? Like we don't know exactly. We don't, there are things at the edges of our understanding that we don't completely um, have the capability to nail down. Many we do, some we don't. But our job is to, connect those dots when we see, oh, these guys who I regularly talk to over in this neuroscience lab, you know, at these five research institutions, and these people over in these immunology labs, they're all yattering away at me about this little cell, okay? You know, everyone is talking about what it might mean. They're talking about different experiments that are happening that are changing the way they, who have been in the field for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50 years, think is, is going to cause and now has caused 
textbooks to be rewritten. So can I look at these different aspects of research, whether it's, you know, Beth Stevens finding that this cell eats synapses and Yoni Kipnis finding that our immune vessels go to the brain and research that's really hopeful for changing patient outcomes. Is there enough there to give us a new idea of possibility for human health? And does it shift the paradigm in a significant way? In this case, you know, the body and brain are in a constant conversation. That's what this tells us, that they are functioning as one system. We know, for instance, that immune cells in the gut signal through the vagal nerve to microglial cells in the brain. So can this come together, not just like deep in the weeds of synapses and cells and microscopes, but to give us this new idea? And and if I can say yes, then I think it's time to push the conversation. And in this case, to say, okay, our our brain, like our body, is in this intricate moment-to-moment dance with the world around us, that if something affects the body's immune system, it is affecting brain health, how does that give us a new road into our own agency as patients and the things that we need to be thinking about and asking about in terms of patients and and readers visiting clinics and searching for answers. I just want to put my shoulder to the wheel, if you will, and try to push that conversation forward. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, gosh, Donna, I think that that's probably actually a good um a good transition now to maybe um, move on to the final portion of the podcast where I ask my guests the same questions because I'm definitely interested to hear in your response. But before we do, I'm wondering, is there anything, I mean, obviously there's so much in the book that we haven't <laughs> had the opportunity to cover, but that's kind of the point, right? You guys right. need to go out and read the book. But yeah, is, there anything, yeah. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel like, gosh, I would be really remiss if like people walked away from this podcast not having having uh, heard that? Um, I think I would just say that, you know, um, this new understanding is giving us a radical um, new look into different treatments, not just TMS and gamma light flicker therapy, you know, but I cover 14 different treatments that are coming through this new technology, um, trying to intervene with the activity of this cell. And and I just think it's really exciting times. And that is not to say rush out and do them, but it might be ask your, ask your practitioner about them. And some of them are things you can do yourself. Like we know that different types of fasting help reboot microglia. That work is coming out of Hopkins right now. We know that this work around microglia can help researchers understand how severe concussion is and whether or not treatment is working. We know that it's giving us a new view of to how ketamine works and in which patients it is most likely to work in. It is like a new clue into healing and recovery. And so it has to be used wisely, but it is spreading across many different aspects of neuroscience and immunology. So I wouldn't want people to go away thinking we're just talking about these um, these uh, light flicker and, and electrical pulse therapies. It's far beyond that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And far more um, within reach, I suppose, is a good way to put it. I hope so. I think it's coming. Very cool. All right, Donna. Well, I am interested to hear your take on some kind of big picture question. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about the future. And you can think about the future in whatever kind of context is is relevant to you in your life right now. Um, obviously, it's very likely your answer to be informed by the kind of work that you do. So <laughs> number one, um, what is the thing that really does keep you up the most at night, the thing that you're most concerned about, that you are, you know, maybe a little bit, I don't know, pessimistic, even cynical about, that, you know, it's not looking good. And then on the flip side of that, to kind of end on a more positive note, <laughs> what are you genuinely really optimistic about? What are you looking forward to? So I would think that I would say the thing that I'm most pessimistic about is that in my reporting, if you go to all the top psych centers in the United States, and I mean the very best psychiatric centers we have, it's still a medication program. That's still pretty much the only thing that we're giving patients who are really suffering is changing up med cocktails. And that's really frustrating for the scientists who are leading the fields of neuro, the field of neuroimmunology and neurobiology. For them, it's as if um, clinics and psychiatric centers just simply haven't read the research of the past decade. So, of course, we have to move carefully and and cautiously with any patient. But looking at the brain as an immune organ and how we might affect the function of the immune system in ways that could benefit patients' brains is still this orphan child topic outside of psychiatry. And that does keep me up at night. It worries me. And it it concerns me for the patients who I see undergoing treatment now. So so it it makes me angry. And I guess that when we're angry, we don't sleep. <laughs> so, um, and I should say that, you know, I know many patients and I've sat with patients in psychiatric institutions. And I, I think that, you know, we, we can do better. We can do better. And that, that makes me really angry that this one aspect, and as I've been on book tour, you know, people, doctors come out, I've done talks at universities and Harvard and health centers at different, um, you know, medical centers and doctors come out and, and researchers come out and scientists come out, but psychiatry is really stuck in the mud when it comes to this new way of thinking about the brain. And it, it pisses me off. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's almost kind of become a bit entrenched in the actual treatment modality. So there's, it seems like a little bit less room, I guess, to innovate um, when you are focused on how you treat as opposed to having a more, I guess, like global view of, of psychiatric disorder. I couldn't put it any better than that. So, so then on the flip side of that, you know, what are you hopeful for? What are you, you know, genuinely looking forward to? Well, I think when I sit with um, researchers in the lab who are just gesticulating with such excitement about the future that they see, you know, at Broad Institute in Boston, where the best minds from Harvard and MIT and Boston Children's are all coming together, I can tell you that they fill me with hope because what we're working on now, what 
people in the lab are working on now and researchers and clinicians are working on is let's just imagine this future. Let's just say it's 10 years hence. A time where um, a, a kid, let's say, is coming from a family where there's a lot of psychiatric issues, maybe there's been a lot of early adversity, there's bipolar in the family, they can come in and have a test, an assay done for microglial activity because microglia drop factors that descend into the bloodstream, which we are not quite able to test in prime time, but in lab research in patients Mm -hmm. with concussion, we can do this. And let's say that this test becomes widely available, which researchers believe it will be in the next three to five years. And you have a test and it shows, wow, you know, we're seeing over microglial activity, which we associate with synaptic pruning, too much going on too early in this adolescent's brain. Let's say we put that together with genetic factors, um, a history of adversity, and let's say then we are also able to run some brain scans, which are um, being developed now at Yale, and show a loss of synapses in real time, not just the wiring and firing pictures that I talked about earlier, where you can see connectivity or a loss of it, but real true synaptic loss in a scan. And we go, okay, you know, that's not good. We know that this loss of synaptic connectivity is a precursor to depression, anxiety, um, and bipolar, and we don't want to see that happen. And then we are able to start bringing in therapies. And as we bring in those therapies, which might be TMS, they might be neurofeedback, they might be different types of um, dietary interventions, they might be exercise, they might be um, some anti-inflammatories if a patient were really you know, suffering and further along in this trajectory. Mm-hmm. But as we bring in different therapies, we'll be able to measure that microglial activity. And researchers are even working so that you can measure which state microglia are in. Are they in their angelic state? Are they thinking about being assassins? Are they going rogue? Or are they just really bad actors? So as we can begin to measure those things over the next decade, imagine then that we can do one therapy at a time prophylactically And we can see whether or not a therapy is working by retesting and doing non-invasive scans of synapses in the brain. Or let's say it's not even a 12-year-old child. Let's do this in Alzheimer's. 20, 30 years before symptoms begin, we see a loss of synapses in the brain in patients with Alzheimer's. So Yeah, that's a lot of lead time there. Right? So. So that's the future. Like, you know, it's very Star Wars, but it's happening in dozens of labs. This is where the research field is going um, from pretty much every direction. And I think in the next five to 10 years, I would like to beam us forward (laughs) to that future safely with well-replicated studies. But I think that we will get there. And that makes me excited. 
Yeah. Oh, it's very cool. It's all very, very exciting. Well, gosh, Shauna, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing some of these insights, for letting us know all about your new book. It's on sale right now. It came out um, just in January, The Angel and the End Assassin. End of January. Yeah. yeah. The Angel and the Assassin, the tiny brain cell that changed the course of medicine. Gosh, I had so much fun chatting with you today, and I learned so, so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It really was a great pleasure. And thank you for letting me talk nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we can all get together to talk nerdy. 